Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we are delighted to have Quay Corte. I got it. The accent on the A. Yeah. Uh, here to discuss his brand new book, Last Seen in La Paz. And uh, let me just get that up on the screen. Uh, Quay has our our copies, and we're going to be getting some more autographed uh, editions. So I will go ahead and put a buy link in the comments field if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, should you wish to purchase one. But let's see here. Let me just put up the cover. Yeah, it's a really nice cover too. Yeah, really neat. I think so. I really love the colors and um, the face of the young woman. I'm assuming that's who we're going to be talking about. Her yeah. Name is Nagosi. Um, it's that. It's that. It's that red that is so contrasted against the black. I think that's what is so eye-catching about it. It is. And I want to point out to those watching you that February is Black History Month. And so, you know, Black history is way more than just American history. We're going to be talking about Nigerian and Ghanaian history. <coughs> Pardon me. So and I'm going to be yeah. coughing throughout because I seem to require a cold. Ooh. Well, anyway, Everybody watching, if you have questions for Quay that come up during the hour, go ahead and just put them in the comments field and Barbara will bring me back on screen towards the end of the hour and I would be happy to ask any of them. So Barbara, over to you. Thank you, Patrick. I am going to apologize to all of you if I'm racked with coughing. Great thing about masks is they not only prevented COVID, they prevented colds. <laughs> Here it's I true. am. Right, but it's anyway, true. I'm gonna do my best. So let me do a little brief introduction. Quay Corte was born in Ghana and raised by a Black American mother and a Ghanaian father, a retired physician. He lives in Pasadena, California, and is the author of five critically acclaimed novels in the Darko Dawson series, which is where we first met Quay, as well as two other books in the Emma Dijon. Am I pronouncing that correctly? It's uh, John, the D is silent. Okay, Emma John series. Yeah. She is a private investigator, Nigerian. Um, she's Ghanaian and she is Ghanaian. well then you know the write-up in the book has said that she was um Nigerian oh that's an error <laughs> well I'm pointing it out now because I thank felt you. right into it thank you I appreciate I, I appreciate that uh, we need to get that fixed yeah because I I did um I did see that now the uh first book was called well actually we talked to Quay I think it was last year with yeah with, with Michael joining in yeah. Um, he's a fan of Quay, as are we. Um, and we talked about Emma's second case, but maybe we should go back for those of you not familiar with his work. Talk to us a little bit about the missing American first and then the second case before we get to La Paz. Right. Um, the missing American was the introduction of um, Emma Jan. And in that story, um, a man is kind of uh, an American man who lives in Washington, D.C. is duped by someone who misrepresents themselves as a very beautiful Ghanaian woman. And he has been in, 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 in Ghana before during the Peace Corps days. And so he goes to meet this wonderful woman and then he just disappears. So his son, Derek, who's um, the character is Gordon and his son is Derek. Derek goes to Ghana to find out what on earth has happened. And he approaches Emma and her colleagues at the SOA investigative um, agency. And, um, you know, as, as a lot of things happen, she thinks it's just, you know, regular missing persons case, but it's a, a lot more involved than that. So, and that, that was the first one. And then the second one, Sleep Well, my lady, um, it's, it's based loosely on a, a true story of um, a woman, it was in Kenya though, she, she was murdered in bed and the way she was posed, it looked like she was just asleep. And um, so I took that story and, and modified it a little bit, but basically this is a, a very successful young um, fashion designer, a Ghanaian, um, you know, who, well, there are jealousies all around. There, there are lots of suspects who wanted her done in. And um, again, Emma goes on the case because um, the clients came in and said, well, the Ghana police are not doing very much. So uh, we, we need to get you on the case. And, and, that, sh and that she does. There's a lot of really good um, 
detective work in, in that one. It really is. Now, why is it that you switched from Darko Dawson uh, to a woman, to Emma? What, you know, I, I mean, starting a new series, you really wanted to be quite different? Yes, I did. It, it was part, uh, partly me and then partly also my publishers. Um, Darko Dawson was actually a legacy from Penguin Random House to um, Soho Press, which, which I moved to after the second Dawson series. And although, I, although they appreciated it, I could tell they really wanted their own series. And it just so happens that in the last Darko Dawson book, I introduced a female uh, assistant. And I was going to kind of uh, spin off of that and have Darko working with this um, assistant. But, um, you know, Juliet Graham said, uh, said to me, and she was absolutely right. She said, you know, if, you, if you're going to create a, a new detective, let's have it a separate series on its own. And I, that was very wise because otherwise Darko would sort of overpower the story, I think. And it, it's good to have Emma on her own. Um, and yes, I, I, did, I really did want a, a female protagonist um, because it kind of coincided with the whole we Too, uh, Me Too movement. That was around the time I started to conceive of, of Emma. And it, it's, it was just after that period when there's a lot of, you know, these horrible stories of how, you know, women are subjected to this kind of nasty treatment, you know, every day. And, um, and in fact, the first novel, uh, The Missing American, actually highlights an incident in which um, uh, this occurs. So yeah, it is a very topical entry of uh, Emma into the into the scene. Into the oh, I'm delighted that you did. The reason I asked you that question is, you know, there's so much push on publishing right now for quote authenticity. You know, meaning that you know, if you're not gay, you can't write a gay mystery. If you're not a person of color, you can't write a person of color mystery. And mm -hmm. you know, to some degree, you have to stay in your own gender. Unless, of course, you know, you decide to be gender fluid or, you know, use neutral pronouns or something. Right, right, right. Um, and I'm not in favor of any of that. I think that fiction is fiction and that people should be allowed to use their imagination, um, yeah. research the whole bit. I so, mean, that, that's, that would be like saying, well, you never robbed a bank. So how can you have a bank robber character in your, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> No, it doesn't. But, you know, publishers have actually hired sensitivity readers. And, oh. you know, and I, I, again, if I were an author rather than a bookseller, I would be really resistive to sending my manuscript through, you know, a process like that, because I might, I might have had things in it that I perhaps even intended to be insensitive yeah. in order to um, create a point, arouse interest, you know, propel, whatever. Um, and I, I'm hoping that I live through the blacklist. I lived through the McCarthy era because mm. I was um, born in 1940 and I was actually born in Chicago or Winnetka, which was right below Wisconsin where, yeah, yeah. where Senator McCarthy. And I remember that. I remember all that censorship. I remember how terrified people were, you know, to, um, and, and I don't like even a sense of a blacklist, which is yeah. what I feel is descending upon us to a great degree. Yeah, and I, and I think that sort of ties in with this whole business now of banning books. And I mean, Toni right. Morrison, you're going to take that out of a library? I mean, what, what are we doing? Well, I don't know. I have no idea what's going on in Florida, but it's insane. Um, you know, the lengths to which they are going. Now he's taking on the mouse. And I'd like to think that maybe Disney could manage to take on DeSantis. But you know what? It's it's all it's all about getting clicks and attention for yeah, politicians. Right. And one thing, you know, one thing I'll say about Emma Jan Darko <clears throat> is um is very interesting when I write Emma, I feel very relaxed through the whole oh. process. But with Darko, I was always tense. And Ooh. yeah, and I think it's just the, you know, males tend to be a little competitive with each other. It's all the testosterone thing. And so he, he, he made me tense. Emma has got a, a, a totally different approach to solving mysteries. She's, she's got a certain finesse about her. Um, you know, you, you don't know that she's 
thinking about things and and how you're going to get trapped because she's kind of disarming in a way and I think I kind of fell under her spell in that way <laughs> yeah wow that's a really interesting thought right the other gender and relax <laughs> very interesting very well interesting. you know and how how it's very insightful of you you know to be able to assess your own emotional um yeah to the whole thing so oh absolutely absolutely it was, it was quite a, it was a surprise even to me <laughs> um when I realized that this was this was the case and and it must be the case because I I felt it I really felt it so as a what what sort of medicine did you practice you said well I, I was sort of jack of all trades I, I started with internal internal medicine then I fell into urgent care and then after urgent care, I fell into chronic wound care. So that was the last thing that I did um, before I retired in, in 2018. Uh, but yeah, it was a, a long, it was a long um, donation, I don't know about donation, giving of my time to the practice of medicine. And even though I was writing and practicing medicine at the same time, I just knew there had to come a day when I had to say, Medicine's had its good run. I now have to turn 100% to writing novels. And 2018 was, was the, the year when I knew I was ready. Why crime fiction? Uh, it's a love that stems all the way from childhood. Um, we had so many, my, my mom and dad were both university professors and they had both fiction and non-fiction books all over the all over the house and um I just I was just attracted to you know uh Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, Dorothy Sayers, Agatha Christie, all of them and then also some um childhood uh some uh or young adult uh, mysteries as well you know similar to either Nancy Drew or the Hardy Boys and and that's I have stuck with that all the way I've actually tried my hand at different things like I tried romance, that was a disaster. Um, and I've tried, you know, just sort of dramatic novels, you know, with sweeping family epic things and that didn't work either. So, you know, I do what I do what I like and um, that is apparently so far all I can do. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. That's wonderful. Now, if you've made her a private investigator, you've given her a fair amount of latitude in terms yeah. of what she can do. If she were a cop, she'd have to abide by, yeah. um, you know, the rules and ethics of the police force. Right. And if she were an amateur sleuth, then you have to come up with cogent reasons why a person not involved in any kind of law enforcement or investigation, you know, yeah. would be pursuing a crime. So I, I love private eye novels. They, they might really be my favorite form of crime fiction. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of... Um, study, Patrick and I have talked about it, we've talked about it with Michael Connolly in point of fact, about the fact that, you know, the first private American private eye novels actually arose mostly in California, where yeah. the West ended, and, you know, the Western hero yeah. um, turned into the private investigator, and, and I, th I think there's so much that's arc archetypal if there's such a word as that or the private investigator is part of the american archetype let me put it yes that way. absolutely you know um, and so you know i i think it's great that it can now reverse and go across the water you know and you yeah. can about but i guess the question i would have for you is you know the role of private investigator relatively new to uh to ghana or nigeria or any of the countries you're writing about or is that a long tradition there I, I don't know how far back it goes, um, but the two private investigators I know um, in Accra, Ghana, who do a lot of you know research for me that I'm not either not able to do on my trips or you know I think of something and it's like oh my goodness so that I usually contact them and said could you go to such and such a spot and tell me what's going on and stuff like that. I don't know how, both of them are quite young, so I, I, I'm not sure how long PIs have been around, but it's not, there are not a large number. Um, and the way I came across these two uh, private investigators was, 
I actually went through a website that's based in London, the UK, and what they they did is they have certified um, private investigators on the continent of, of, of Africa, at least in West Africa. So they recommended that particular private eye to me. And then I worked with him. And then once I worked, started working with him, he told me about this other private eye. So both of them do work sometimes separately or sometimes they coordinate to, to get me uh, information and so on. And you know, it's a very, it's a very, um, why one of the things I find so interesting about Emma is that, you know, the interaction with the police is, it's very varied. Some police will have nothing to do with PIs. And some police actually use PIs to help them catch people. Um, and then the people who are kind of like in the middle. Um, but the, the, thing, the, the thing about, um, about Emma is that she has this kind of um, relationship with uh, one of the, the detectives in the Ghana police service. And they sort of bounce, they sort of like bounce off each other. They do stuff for each other. And sometimes, you know, the cop will say, like, mm, I'm not so sure about this. And <laughs> so it's it's a very, it's sort of a very nuanced um relationship between the two. And I I really enjoy writing it. I mean, the one difficulty is that, you know, obviously a PI can never make an arrest. Right. So, you know, you have to find some way of the person getting apprehended and that's always a little bit of a, a challenge in the end especially I think, at the end. I think you met it very well and in fact Quay if um back in the 1990s when there was a move um, the woman sleuth it was called was a hugely popular um genre of crime fiction it was fueled by people like Sue Grafton and Sarah yes. Marsha Mullins Bresby, and, yes. forth. and yeah. um the, it really dominated for quite a while but all of these women who were basically, as you, you know, private investigators, meaning not law enforcement, had to have either a boyfriend or a brother, someone yeah. or some right. connection, or could have it could have been a sister or female friend, because yeah. after all, you know, yeah. police are not exclusively male by any means. But anyway, they had to have some kind of a link. But then, you know, I I was thinking back to the golden age of crime fiction, Lord Peter Sayer's brother-in-law. Was oh, yes. our detective, Mr. Campion, Mr. Campion had, um, yes, uh, I can't remember, Lug was his butler, but anyway, he had his own police inspector, you know, Poirot had um, Inspector Jap, I think it is, right, Ms. Marple had um, a nephew, right. who and, was, and, um, and uh, Holmes had, uh, what was, oh, Lestrade, Lestrade, that's right, Lestrade. That's right. so in point of fact, that design, really is from the beginning of, you know, the private eye novel, there has always had to be someone officially in law enforcement in yeah. order to affect arrests. A private eye reports to a client and can do, you know, investigations, you know, is your boyfriend cheating? Or yeah. Cheating, all that stuff. Background if, checks, things yeah, like Yeah, exactly. That. But if you really want to arrest somebody, you have to bring in law enforcement. So I think you're just continuing in an honorable tradition. Oh, thanks. Actually, I had a, a real case in, in Ghana. It, was, it, it had to do with the, the theft of um, one of my, a, a vehicle, actually. And the private investigator that, that I um, used or employed, he's the one that actually tracked down where this uh, thief was, discovered that he had actually moved out of the country and was in Togo next door. And he was very instrumental in actually luring him back by contacting the wife and telling the wife, you know, we have some great driver jobs here. And if he would come back, we can make sure he gets employment instantly. So he was supposed to meet at a particular hotel. And when he got there, the police were waiting for him. I mean, this is like real, it just worked so well. It's amazing, it's really amazing. The job that he did is, is incredible, incredible. Because the, the police would never have gotten him. They would never have gotten him. That was really- Underworked, understaffed, they spread too thin, you know, it, it, yeah. and on and on. 
Well, I mean, there's no reason really why private investigators and police can't be allies. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And, you know, and you're right, the private investigator can bring off a sting operation that the police probably lack the manpower and maybe, you know, aren't ethically allowed yeah. to do that. Because ultimately, if you arrest somebody, you still have to put them on trial. And yes. if there are um, flaws in the arrest or, you know, <clears throat> that can that can screw it up. Yeah. So I'm sorry, there goes my voice again. <clears throat> anyway, let's talk about La Paz. And yeah. one of the things that I read um, this man this this book as a as a manuscript because we're very close to publication date and yeah. the books didn't arrive. Hmm. Excuse me. But one of the things that I was very taken with at the front of the manuscript and in the front of the book, I'm assuming, um, yeah. is in fact a helpful map. Mm -hmm. which will um, be useful to you as you read a story because um, trafficking, human trafficking is right. a big part. So I'm going to ask Quay if he can hold up the map because he has a copy of it right there. <laughs> Happy to say. Yeah, this, this is a and, poster that um, I had made um, for my Roman's appearance uh, last uh, last right. night. And um, so the, the countries involved in this story is Nigeria, Niger, and then Ghana. Um, Ghana, of course, is where I was born, so there were no, no big um, sort of set, setting up that I had to do there. But with Nigeria and Niger, number one, I had to make sure that I was going to be safe. And number two, that, you know, the guys that I, I got are legit and, you know, not going to rip me off. And I, I mean, I was really lucky to come across two brothers who, um, quite young Nigerians, who had started their own um, uh, tour agency. And what they did was they altered the, the usual schedule that they had, you know, the, 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 the boilerplate things that you go to see. They altered it for me so that I could meet some of these migrant returnees. And all of these arrows show um, uh, routes that are taken from Nigeria and up to Libya and hopefully to Italy. The issues there are, number one, they usually told lies about what you know, they can achieve by going to Italy. These are desperately poor people and they want a better life. So when somebody comes in and says, you know, you could go to Italy, you could get, um, uh, a job in a in a salon. You could be a tour invest a tour guide, um, and then they tell them other lies like you get three months of rent free, and and that's what sends them. And then they discover that it's not like that at all. Number one, when they move from uh, Nigeria to Niger, they, they pay money here, mm -hmm. and it could be like five hundred dollars, which okay. is a lot for a poor family. And when they get here to Agadez, which is kind of like a staging point, they discover there's more money to be paid. They have to pay to get from here across the Sahara Desert to there. And when they get here, they discover there's more money to be paid so that they can go across the Mediterranean Sea. So by the time they get even halfway sometimes, they have run out of money. And, and this is why there are a lot of people who were trying to get to um, Libya and Europe, and just end, ended up stuck in Agadez. And um, so there are a number of characters in Lassine and La Paz who go through this ordeal. And this somehow ties into a murder of um, a young man whose name is Femi, who um, runs off with uh, his girlfriend, whose name is Ngozi. She's, she's the Nigerian. And they go to Ghana to start this... Um, hotel business. Uh, Femi is shot by, you know, somebody unknown, and then Ngozi disappears. So Emma's task is to, number one, find Ngozi. Hopefully she's alive. And, you know, time is not on her side. So it, there is, there is a, quite a, a rush for her to, um, you know, find Ngozi. And, uh, and then as she's doing this, the so-called missing, <laughs> the missing case explodes into something that she had never known about. And this is all these, this trafficking going on. And in, in Ghana, 
there's also trafficking between Nigeria and Ghana because um, well, Ghana pays a little better for sex workers. Um, and, um, and it's also a little bit more sophisticated in terms of um, you know, networks, uh, websites, and things like that. But the, the, point of, the point of it is that at every level, there is exploitation of these sex workers. And it's really quite, it's like indentured servitude. It is so severe because, for example, they are expected to pay money to the madam who kind of oversees all of them. And the madam might take you know, up to 80% of their earnings. And, and they need to make a certain amount per week. Otherwise, they're just gone or hurt or beaten. And um, so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a no-win situation, a no-win situation. And that's why it, it sort of angers me that these people down here in Nigeria, you know, tell them a whole bunch of lies that, you know, they're going to be successful. And, and they end up being, you know, basically sex workers. It, it, you know, because it's, it's not a situation they can get out of easily. You can't just come back. <laughs> that's, that's even harder than going forward. Well, if you've yeah. lost all your money, um, exactly. Yeah. And if you, if you get stuck at one of those points and you've run out of money, then basically you do wind up indentured. So, I mean, in its own way, it's really a form of slavery, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's modern, day, modern day slavery. And, um, you know, it's something that a lot of people are not aware of. And, and I must say that I, I wasn't aware of the extent of it. I got interested when, um, I don't know if you remember, there were um, these uh, clips of um, Africans, Black Africans in these flimsy rubber dinghies trying to cross the Mediterranean. Sometimes they capsized. Um, a lot of times they were picked up by the Italian authorities and sent right back. And then that's where I got interested in how all this crossing is, do is done. And, and that's, so that's what I basically researched um, in Nigeria and Niger. Um, and I'm happy to say that I didn't get robbed by anybody. <laughs> I'm really glad you did. I did want to ask you a question why you still have the map, if you could pull it back oh, yeah. And I'm, I probably know the answer, but I just want to make it clear. We're talking starting over here in West Africa. Yeah. And a straight shot up to cross in Spain would actually be fairly simple. The Straits of Gibraltar are very narrow. Yes. But instead, yes. you have people moving dramatically east and yeah. then targeting Italy. So, why is it that they, is it just too difficult to go through Algeria and Morocco? To oh, ac actually, that, that is one of the routes. And some people swear by the Moroccan route. The only thing is the distance is, um, you know, vastly longer. That's why. If you're starting on the west coast, why would it be longer? Because you could just, you know, you would you would basically go almost straight north. Well, but the thing is that you have to have you have to have the um, you have to have the infrastructure that's going to get you there. Ah. And the thing is, the in Agadez, for example, there's just a whole system of these. People they call connection men. They got the, the transportation vehicles and stuff like that. So you have to have that. And that's why a lot of people go to Agadez. But I, in the interviews I did of some of the returnees, uh, a lot of them swore by the Moroccan route. And they, they, they claimed Moroccans were nicer to them than the, the Libyans were. Uh, Algeria was also a, another route as well. But you know the, the stretch of, of desert in Algeria is, is it's really, it's, a, it's really something. It's really something. Plus well, I agree. It's terrible. But yeah. on the other hand, crossing the Mediterranean is a That's really horrible experience. And it's awful. very, very close. But I have been to Gibraltar um, myself, you know, yeah. and, and in that area. But, uh, you know, we have the same problem here on our southern borders where, you know, crossing points and people get turned back and people... And, you know, it isn't always sex trafficking that they end up... I mean, there were the Asian community here, I think... I'm not mistaken, many of the Chinese who were brought over here in similar fashion ended up having to work on the railroads or yeah. in sweatshops of one sort or another. Absolutely. They weren't sex workers, but they yeah. were basically, once again, indentured and, yeah. you know, more or less in slavery to work yeah. off. So is, is it generally true in this particular pattern? 
that it would be sex trafficking or you know would there are there other um, I mean I would I would broaden it to um to human trafficking because in general um the men uh don't don't go into um uh, sex work but what they are used for is um you know uh for example farm work um in Libya I understand from one of the people I interviewed uh, it's really funny they detest black people but they really admire how hard black Africans can work <laughs> so if they wanted to choose between an Arab worker and a black African they take a black African any day but they still hate them so I don't I don't <laughs> you figure that out but they do have they they do have slave auctions there just like we used to have you know years and years ago um and 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 they some of the some of the workers are bought um and but they're not paid when when they go to work so there you there you go that's out and out slave. No, there, there was a relatively more straightforward although equally horrific system that went on in europe where people who had no money actually signed up uh, to for trees free transportation to the Americas, probably Australia and Canada, in exchange for a definite period. I think it was seven years for most of them. Mm -hmm. That you know they they agreed to work seven years for whoever. I see. Message. But you know it was it was a contract, and you know it had an ending. Um, and, and and you know I, I mean, what would you do if you were an extremely poor person in some European slum and you had an opportunity? To improve your life, would you, in fact, sign up for five years or seven years or something in order to get free passage to, you know, move to the new world? And and I can see how that could be far more attractive when you saw an end to it than if you get into the kind of situation you're talking about, where you know there is no there concept. is no end. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you're really at the mercy of the people. You really are a slave as opposed to yeah. a contract laborer. Yeah, and it, and 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 really, it's hugely. Pro I mean, it's hugely profitable for um, these madams, as they're called. They they make a lot of money. Yeah, well, we both know. both on the both on the continent of Africa and in Europe as well. They make yeah. a lot of money. Well, it's always been true. I mean, if you go to Alaska, for example, you know they always show you the whorehouses that you know flourished during the Klondike Gold Rush and so forth. Yes, yes. Know? Um, being a madam is a is an oldest profession, so it, I'm not surprised. Really but anyway, so let's talk. We've sort of given away a potential threat to Negosi, the missing girl here. Maybe she has, in fact, gotten caught up in this network, but maybe something else has happened to her. Yeah. So um, I thought that Femi was a really interesting character. We don't we don't know much about him. We know he's really good looking and charismatic. Um, and we don't know whether we can trust him or whether he's, um, you know, some sort of predator. We don't really know anything about him. Uh, you've already mentioned that he is killed. So, you know, that I actually was surprised by that. I thought, right. you know, I, I didn't expect him to be the victim. I thought you'd, that was an interesting um, moment when the plot kind of, you know, twists in a direction that that I, I didn't expect. But Femi, have you met guys like that? Did you just, you know, make him up? Where does he come from? Um, I, I'd say I've met guys who are maybe a, a, a lesser version of Femi. But I mean, Femi has a lot of um, characteristics of uh, psychopathy. Mm -hmm. He's, um, you know, he's very narcissistic. He's after one thing and one thing alone, and that greed drives him completely. And, um, you know, for example, one person said uh, in, in the book, he says, the only thing Femi cares about is money <laughs> right. above all else. But he's, he's uh, psychopathic in, 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 in a way that, uh, for example, these bursts and flashes of anger that he has that just like appear out of the blue. Um, it's I don't even understand it. I, I couldn't understand why Femi, you know, behaves in this way. And you see another part of him as a, a very suave, um, smooth talker. Um, and he, but he can be like extremely violent. And there's so many. You know what? What you know what? Um, 
I liken it to, you, you remember like the, the whole series of like the Godfather and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. These were people, these gangsters could explode at any minute, uh, pull out their gun and shoot, you know, shoot you right in the temple. And um, unexpectedly, and that's, that's kind of the way I looked at, at Femi, you know, a, a very, very dark underside to him. There's a, um, you know, the whole nature versus nurture debate, which yeah. will never really be resolved. But, you know, we do know that Femi had a very difficult childhood. Yep. Um, and so, you know, you're right. He clearly is psychopathic and he, but he clearly has an allure for a young girl like Ngozi based partly on his physical charms and so forth. Right. But, you know, part of me was a little sympathetic towards him in the sense that, you know, he had to survive some really awful things and make his own way in the world. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, he's that, that's what they, you know, the, the whole cliche of a complex uh, character. He's not all bad and he's not all good. There, there are aspects of him that, um, that combine to make the whole person, but they're kind of dissonant, you know, you know what I mean? And um, yeah, sometimes you're a victim of, of your, your circumstances. I mean, look at all, look at, look at gangsters, the way, the way they, they die. They kind of dig, dig their grave and, you know, they get killed because it's the lifestyle they're living. And, you know, how did they get into that lifestyle? Well, you know, it's probably a very com complicated uh, story and you might have, you might understand it, but you, you don't have empathy for them because you, you just don't understand how they, how they can be so uh, brutal. And uh, so, so that's, that was the aspect of, of Femi that um, I found him very interesting, to be honest with you, very interesting. Oh, I could tell that you did. It was a fascinating character to write. And, you know, you take a young girl like Negosi and you know that the bad boy has a great allure. Yeah. You know, I mean, and that, <clears throat> especially when you're a teenager, yeah. it's really hard to resist that whole, you know, bad boy vibe and so forth. Yeah. Um, but tell us about Negosi and her background. Because she's... Yeah, right. And Gozi actually, <laughs> somebody commented is like, he said, you know what, this is kind of Ngozi's story. And I mean, she's she's there almost throughout the whole book. But the thing is, she's she's a what's interesting about her is uh it's kind of contrasted to some of the other um characters who come from a you know poverty-stricken background. She's the daughter of a diplomat, um the previous ambassador, Nigerian ambassador to, to Ghana. And she set up to go to law school in the fall. And some, 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 for some reason, she just gives that all up and runs away with this guy. And it's like, what are you doing? It's the bad boy thing. I'm telling you, it's the whole Johnny Depp vibe. It really is. Yeah. And, and, and so, you know, it takes her quite a while to come around to it. To it's like, hmm, I, I need to reconsider this. So, um, but yeah, she's basically very privileged, and I was I was interested in this this business of going. I mean, her dad was so dismayed by the, this fact that his daughter, his beloved daughter, goes with this guy, who of, of course her dad considers you know like the scum of the earth, who we've never let his daughter get near to. Um, but she 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 goes with him, and I I don't know. That's always kind of fascinated me, you know, the choices people make. Well, you know, you know, so you know quite when you have a young girl who is that privileged, you know, she's always had security. She's never had to be, you know, hungry or or homeless or really afraid. And and there's a certain feeling of invulnerability that young people have anyway. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, most war heroes are actually young, like Audie Murphy from World War II or something, because young men tend to think, you know, they're invulnerable, that the bullet is never going to be for them. Yeah. And um, and I think that would be true of her, is that she, uh, you know, doesn't understand, because she has no... Right. She kind of doesn't know what's out there. Exactly. You know, um, and so she would be... Um, did Femi specifically target her? Um, not not prior to his his meeting her. 
Okay. And once once he met her, he he was taken with her. But I think what happened is all this other stuff got in the way. Um, and he he did, I guess he you might say he loved. I don't think he loved Ngozi. Um, but I think he was taken with her. But as one of the characters said, you know, he loves money much more than he loves Ngozi. Yeah, but she was an asset. I mean, let's face it, you know, there was money behind her. So I suspect Yeah, that's true. That, you know. That that and, uh, but yes, uh, no, you, you, you actually, Barbie, you are right because now I think of it. He, he actually, I'm not going to give it away, but he actually tried to uh, misuse her privilege for his gain, and so in that way, yes, actually, she was a, a, a good target. And of course, where he met her is own is is the place that only you know well-heeled people would go to. So he knows that you know there's some money in the bank. So yeah, in some ways, uh, I I would say maybe even subconsciously, he targeted her. He has a feel for this, I think. He has a feel for it. You know, this is a really interesting conversation. You would think these are real people we're talking about that Valkoi and I have something never I mean, figured about. And you know, it, it gets to a point. I don't know how much this happens to other authors, but it gets to a point that you are so totally living in their world. Actually, sometimes you forget. You know, like the humdrum things that you're supposed to be doing, like. You know, I don't know, goes going to the grocery stores, uh, doing you know, going to the cleaners or whatever, and this whole world kind of envelops you, um, and it's it's really something. It's really something. You get really involved in what what's going on uh, with these these characters. But I think that's why you know your writing could be described as immersive. If you're that immersed in it and the reader yeah. will be too. And, you know, you've introduced, we've already mentioned a ticking clock aspect to this because time is not in favor of a young girl who yeah. basically has very little in the way of uh, world-like, you know, survival skills has gone missing. Yeah. And we think we know what happened to her. And then suddenly what we think happened to her can't be what really happened to her because the guy is dead. Yeah. And so the exactly. whole thing goes that way. Exactly. That's all yeah. we're saying. But, um, you know, I, I, the urgency of finding her does not diminish with the death of Femi. Yeah, I think it actually in increases. It, it does exactly yeah. because now we're completely mystified. We thought before it was a more, it was a simple kind of a case, and then right. it's much more complicated. So um, I really applaud you. I think um, I liked your first two books a lot, and I think this is a a wonderful continuation. <clears throat> excuse me continuation are you already plotting out another i hesitate yeah. to ask this because sometimes authors are either done or you know they're no 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 i'm i'm well into um the next novel uh which, which will hopefully be released um in 2024 and this time she takes on something that um is also very topical um the ghana government is considering um, passing a bill through parliament. It's, it's been called the anti-gay bill, but actually the, the full name is um, the bill for Ghanaian family values and the protection of human rights or something like that. And it's against gay people. Go figure. Well, there's one in Russia. You know, the Russians have just passed one and are going about really. Oh, Uganda too. Yeah, the two. I know. But but you see the 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 um the twist is that people in Ghana have it backwards. They're saying that white men brought homosexuality to Africa, but actually it's the reverse. Homosexuality was in Africa. When the white people came, they made it a moral sin. So that's why in the law books. Um, it said it's unnatural carnal desires, whatever the hell that means. So they have the whole thing backwards. And now they think that, you know, African countries were sort of, you know, persuaded into homosexuality. Well, what is going on now? You've got a whole bunch of white people. And, and this is this is a um, international um, organization called um, uh, oh yes, World uh, World Council of Families, and they are at work in Uganda, Nigeria, and other cases. And what they do is they go in there and they lobby with government 
to get these anti-gay laws passed. They're based in the US, but they're going to Africa to meddle. Now, how this is not more meddlesome than the, the colonial, uh, colonials coming to Africa and colonizing, I don't understand. Why, how, how is it that you're not able to think this through? You know, they say, we are a sovereign nation. Well, then behave like one, you know? If you are just being willy-nilly just um, persuaded by people who come from other shores that homosexuality is bad, um, then what are you doing? This is not independent thinking, thinking at all. So this is gonna be the, the next one that um, Emma tackles. And of course it, it will introduce her to a world that you know, she, she never knew existed, which is, which is why I like putting Emma into uh, these situations because you just discover things that you, you never knew were. Well, you know what? Quite, quite crime fiction demands conflict. And I think that's one reason it's often said that crime fiction tends to cut along the edge of social change and social controversy yeah. because, you know, just murdering people is not really enough. There ought to be reasons for it. There ought to be reasons for all the emotion. There ought to be reasons for death. You know, you don't want to have a casual homicide, then, you know, that's not. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of like, I, I kind of like the idea of, you know, something way bigger than the murder itself is kind of lurking and waiting to be discovered by, you know, Emma or, or whoever it is. Um, because then it makes it part of the, as, as the, the Kirkus reviewer said, is, uh, he said something about Corte always, uh, how did, what he said, always brings uh, piercing social ills to his, uh, um, to his uh, mystery novels. And it's true, most of them have been surrounding an, an issue, uh, a, social, a social issue. Um, but I'm, I'm really passionate about this one coming up because this is, this, if they ever pass this, this would be one of the biggest mistakes Ghana has ever made. It's, it's a disaster. It is a total disaster. And, you know, there are some Western countries who have already said, you know, if you go ahead and pass this thing, we will pull out because it's not fair. It's not fair. And we're not going to support you and invest in you if you are brutalizing some of your you know, a minority in your country. And um, I agree. I totally agree. I would do the same. I always am sad when government decides to legislate private concerns. Yeah. We have this patchwork here because, you know, we're a federal unit yeah. and therefore states have sovereignty yeah. as well. Yeah. And, you know, I found it interesting that we could pass the same-sex marriage bill at the same time we passed an anti-abortion bill. Isn't that something? You know, I mean, and, you know, we went through the horrible mistake of prohibition, which not only didn't get people to stop drinking, but in introduced organized crime. Yeah. Uh, you know, every time there's an attempt to legislate people's private lives, it ends up in unanticipated and usually ways that make things worse rather than you are so better. you are so right you um so you know right. if you go back and look at um you know the i'm trying to think of his name because i'm having a blank here but the the wonderful british guy that ran the um bletchley um program oh, yeah. and yeah. you know ended up in 1956 committing suicide because it, you know he was so personal that's right he was gay, right? gay man alan turing yeah there we go yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was 1956, for heaven's sake, you yeah. know, it wasn't even, so, I don't know, it seems like we, you know, move forward, and then we have these horrible periods of backlash and regression when, when people, you know, get all worked up about stuff that in truth is none of their business and other people's lives, and then exactly. go again, and right now, you know, the whole world is polarized, you know, our country's polarized, but it's true all over, um, I mean, I find it absolutely fascinating that we passed an anti-abortion law when Ireland and Mexico, really Catholic countries, decided to allow abortion. I mean, you know, it's it's just weird. You know, I, I mean, you know, at, at 82, I have seen so many changes that have really just thrown me, you know, that truths I would never have imagined when I was young that Ireland would support abortion. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, and now even the Pope is coming out and defending, you know, and saying that it's not the church's business to, yeah. to take a stand against. And, you know, really, I, organized religion is responsible for an incredible number of ills if you go back all the way through history. 
And, you know, people use what they call faith to justify really terrible behavior to their fellow citizens. And that makes me sad. Yeah. But that's and, enough. And that's, a, that's the name. The, the name of the novel is called The Whitewashed Tombs. And that is actually Ooh. a quote from the Bible in which um, it sometimes goes something like, I think it was Paul to the Corinthians, um, that, you know, some of these people in governments um, are like wash, whitewashed tombs. They look nice on the outside, but inside it's full of filth. And so, and that's that. That's actually what um, this novel, a lot of it is going to show is that there's so much hypocrisy about this. You know, we, we know, although, um, you know, it's hard to get names, but we know that some of these legislators, as in this country, some of these legislators are uh, closeted homosexuals and some of them are the loudest ones, uh, you know, uh, making protestations against, uh, you know. Well, they are, but don't forget, we're living in an age of cliques, you know, where people um, who are wanting to amass power are desperate for attention um, in the media and so forth. But the other thing is that just as all the election deniers in this country, it's grifting. It's absolutely grifting, you know, and we're even seeing it. I'm going to say this to make myself really unpopular, but in my opinion, Prince Harry is a royal grifter, you know. I mean, this whole deal with his book and so forth. Um, I'm so unimpressed. You know, you know, there's something is a little bit off the topic, but there was there's something sort of very smarmy about the whole uh, the whole story. I I neither watched the the Netflix series nor uh, read his novel because it's Me kind too. of like it's kind of like getting a bird's eye view of just a, a tawdry mess and you know <laughs> I don't see what's redeeming about it and I think people do have a point you know if you want to be left alone <laughs> then don't make a Netflix series it's grifting it's just like Curry Lake it's like Trump you know they by election denying what they do is they sucker people into constantly giving them money yeah, and, you know, and I'm amazed that people fall for it. But I think that is often what happens when, you know, this kind of activity such as you're going to write about in your book goes on is you have to, you know, the basic tenet of crime fiction is follow the money. And I think that, you know, if we really took a hard look at, at most of this, we would also absolutely the money. So absolutely. Patrick, let's call it, we drifted off into a whole conversation <laughs> here. Um, well, that's what's so, so great about talking to you, Barbara. You have so... You have such a wide uh, perspective on so many things. Oh, aren't you nice? Thank you for saying that. So, yeah. Patrick, have we alienated the entire audience? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Let me see. We have some questions, though. Um, oh, there, there was a correction from somebody that Alan Turing did not, in fact, run Bletchley. Uh, but no, worked, he worked at Bletchley. Worked on the Enigma code. Yeah, right, the Enigma, right. Yeah. Yeah, right. and and developed, you know, helped develop the the early machinery, the early yeah. computers. There's a marvelous, a marvelous uh, movie about him. Um, right. I, I think that. there are a couple. There are. Yeah. yeah. No, I shorthanded it because I couldn't remember Bletchley. In point of Bletchley. fact, I keep losing words as I get older, and so I have to sort of reach for them. Yeah, uh, didn't David Lagerkrantz write a book about him, um, the man from Wim Wimslow? I, I, so. I think that was about Turing, but I it could... was about Turing in older age. And there, there was a play that starred Derek Jacoby. That oh I yes, saw, yes, 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 which was a very powerful play. Uh, uh, yes, it was about it Turing. Was. Yeah, and then yeah. he's appeared in actual war novels before because. It was after the war. It was like, you know, 10 years later or something that he actually committed suicide. Mm. So, um, you know. Well, here's a good question from Jell, uh, our friend in Australia. She says, um, are you able to find oral history from ancient times before the current countries of Africa that reflect that homosexuality was a part of the history, pre-written history? Uh, yes. Um, the one example is the the the, the San people of um, southern Africa. Um, they have cave, beautiful cave paintings, and this is way 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 before Europeans ever ever even knew about Africa. But they have um, cave paintings showing, you know, amorous relationships between um, me, uh, men, 
Um, and, and, and the irony is even in Ghana, where all this, this anti-gay uh, nonsense is going on, there is a tradition in um, one of the, the sectors of um, the Ghanaian population where it's encouraged to, um, for the, the, the soldier class, the, uh, the military class, to take on a younger uh, man because they, they cannot get married in that position. So it's encouraged that they take a, a, young, a, a young, usually a younger uh, lover and, um, and they keep them as companions until you know, they're ready to, to get married to a, a woman. So this business of it's never been, you know, it's not part of our culture. I just hate that phrase, not part of our culture, but you didn't research it, did you? You know, you didn't research it. And there, there are lots of other examples um, that, you know, I can go in as well. Well, even in the Western world, you know, the Greeks and the Romans both were fairly open about, you know. They were. In particular, or were very open about same-sex um, right. relationships. So it's not, you know, not exclusive. And people, people make, it, make it up as though it's, su you know, it's such a modern occurrence, you know, like a, a, it's, it's a terrible modern plague or something. But this has been going on for like millennia, you know. And, but you you didn't even bother to find out. It, it just amazes me. Just amazes me. Methinks they doth protest too much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what it is. Um, who are some of your favorite authors? Who who do you look to for inspiration? Um, you know, it's really it's really interesting. I actually like um, the Swedish writer Henning Mankell. And I, I, I say it's interesting because, you know, he had this is the Scandi Noir where the sky is always gray and it's always cold and you, you drink a lot of coffee. And I and I write what 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 some people are calling now um, African Noir or African crime in which everything is bright, hot and sunny, you know, but I actually like Henning Mankell. I did too. I loved his books. I actually went to visit Malmo, which is the, I'm not pronouncing it right because it's uh -huh. non existent. Yeah. But when I was in Sweden the first time, I actually went down to visit that part. I think it's Istad. And yes, yes, yes. That's right. The little town. I was so fascinated by the world that um, Mankel wrote about. But didn't he also write at least one book set in Africa? Yes, uh, in Zimbabwe, I believe it was. Yeah, he, um, and in fact, he did a lot of charitable work in um, Southern Africa as well. Yeah, I think I, I remember that. Yeah. Any so other authors that come to mind? equally attracted to the sun just the way you were attracted to the cold. Right, right. Well, you know, um, you asked uh, um, Webb Patrick if there's anything else. You know, I still, I still go back to uh, Sherlock Holmes every once in a while. I have this whole, I don't know if it's here, I have the, like a huge, the huge volume of all his works. And sometimes I just go back because I just, I just love the way he creates this um, atmosphere. Atmosphere is like really important to me as well. Just the atmosphere of, you know, Holmes's room and, you know, the, and they, they have mock-ups of this uh, in London as well. And, you know, the, the, the clip-clop of, um, you know, the horses, carriages, and you know, come along, uh, Watson. The, the game is afoot. You know, it's just the atmospherics of it that I I've always loved. So I, I still go back to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle every once in a while. You know, because that's the real the real business of of deduction. Um, you know, where we're not relying on you know DNA that was taken this morning, and you know we have the result by the afternoon. Uh -huh, yeah, that works. <laughs> and in Ghana, you know, getting DNA. I don't know if they're still doing it. There is a, a forensic lab, but it used to be that um, they had to send the DNA samples either to South Africa, which has, you know, state-of-the-art forensics, or to Quantico to get results. So, you know, by the time you get those results back, uh, your, your, your guy is either gone or dead or something. So that's what I like about writing um, Emma and, and Darko they really have to rely on, you know, so just good solid detective work because they ain't no day DNA coming, you know, your way that's gonna, oh, it's you. <laughs> yeah, these, these days it's like the perps will just post on Facebook, you know, and get themselves convicted that way. But that's true. Isn't yeah, that it's amazing. 
It's like, how could you be so stupid? Not the brightest, yeah. Because people can't stay off their phones. It's just incredible. It's the true. first law of criminal activity should be leave your phone home. Yeah. Well, I know one guy who's learned that as Trump, he never, ever texts or anything like that, which is smart, <laughs> which is very smart and crafty. <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting harder and harder to, to be untrackable or anonymous oh, yeah. now. I mean, well, you have to really work at it. Yeah, and you know, with um, especially with um, face recognition technology, I mean, some of these guys get snapped up in like a couple of days and they 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 think that they're not not traceable for some odd reason they think that the police will never find out i mean you know how difficult it is to leave a room and not leave some of your dna there right. <laughs> especially if you kill somebody it's not just face recognition increasingly it's um your your gait you know your walk is oh, so yeah. instinctive that they're tracking people not not even if yeah they you're right there was one case uh that was a yeah. guy they, they caught him because he had a limp or something. Right. And um, they saw him on um, on the CCTV. And he Peters was- are getting that. smarter and smarter. So yeah, we are. absolutely. Anything else, Patrick? Um, oh, well, uh, Jell says, I read something recently suggesting that spies are going back to the old fashioned methods. Absolutely. Talking about well, that. Look at the Chinese balloon that we had going over him. You know, I mean, there's an example of, older spycraft being back in play. Um, no, I, what was it that told me that uh, uh, used to be the entrance requirement for the CIA was your handwriting, because if you couldn't write anything that, you know, you could leave it a note in a newspaper on a park bench, you'd be useless as a spy. <laughs> was to tell me that, and now, now it's come back, because you, know, you can't hack a handwritten note. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Now, some exactly of the old spycraft right. is definitely returning. Isn't sure. that interesting? That, that's actually fascinating. So, yeah, well, you know, it, will I, have, it will echo into, into spy fiction. Yeah, you know, and so, you know, writers like John le Carré can come on back, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they don't have to rely on it. Yeah, if John comes back, it'll be a real technical breakthrough. Yeah, so exactly. exactly. <laughs> work on somebody else, right? Anything else, Pete? Um, let me see. I've been been neglecting YouTube. Uh, no, I think that's about it for tonight. All right. Well, Quay, it's really been a pleasure to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much really for joining us. Thank I... you for signing the books that we've sent to you. And um, we may need to send you a few more, depending on what orders come in. in okay. The next few days. okay. I'll, as soon as they come, I'll, I'll get to uh, signing. I'll email them, but... me when they do. So we Okay, I will. I will. Yeah. But I, I think there's some issue with the mails um, east to west because like I say I usually Soho will send me like maybe 10 copies of my book usually a week in advance of the, the release I have not seen a single box well, you know the the whole production side is still slippery um, mm -hmm. you know we're, we're used to that so yeah and for you're just in Los Angeles aren't you quite yeah uh, Pasadena Pasadena yeah yeah, yeah. well it's not too far away, away. There's no nice real, here. yeah, but there's no real rush about, you know, getting the books here for a virtual event because, yeah. you know, we, we had to send them to you. If you were here, which would be really nice if you were maybe with the next book, then the question is to, you know, bring you and the books together in the same place. And that actually is more difficult right now than it is to do it the way we're doing it, which is you're at home and we send you books and then you send them to us. Yeah, I think that I think that's very, very smart, very cl uh, clever. Um, there's one bookstore, a mystery bookstore. Um, it's actually the only um, Black-owned indie uh, bookstore uh, west of the Mississippi, I think. Um, it, it's called Essawan. And they started, I don't know when they started this, but they started doing signed copies. Um, and people were actually ordering books a lot more when they had signed copies yes. and, and, and from all over the country that that was the thing so you didn't have to be in los angeles to come and get a, um, a copy or, or wait for the author to come you know and sign your, right. your book so i think it's a great idea i think it's a great idea well thank you for cooperating we really oh appreciate. thank you no no it's my pleasure you know that <laughs> so i want to thank everybody who has joined us this evening um, yeah thank you anyone who has ordered one of quay's books 
and generally supported the Poison Pen. We're extremely grateful. There will be a podcast made from this video and the video and the YouTube video will stay up forever. Oh, that's nice. You could that's recommend nice. that people, I'll send you the links, Quace. So okay, wonderful. Yeah, and then I can, people I can do that. So good night, Patrick. Thanks very night. much for your Thank time. Thank you, Patrick. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Barbara. Appreciate it. Too. You so bet. Bye-bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.